and welcome to Spotlights. This is the podcast for the Yale Forum on Religion and Ecology. And this week, I'm really happy to welcome onto the show Christopher Key Chapel. Chris, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here, Sam. So uh, for folks that don't know you, uh, you are the Doshi Professor of Indic and Comparative Theology and founding director of the Masters of Arts in Yoga Studies at Loyola Marymount University in L.A. So uh, you're also a longtime collaborator with the folks of the Forum on Religion and Ecology and, you know, have edited volumes like Hinduism Ecology, Jainism and Ecology, uh, written many books on yoga yoga and its relationship to ecology. Um, and you have a new book out, Living Landscapes, Meditations on the Elements in Hindu, Buddhist, and Jain Yogas. Uh, so before we get into the book specifically, I'd love to hear a little bit about how you ever decided to put yoga and ecology together. You know, I'm sure it's more than just like the tree pose. <laughs> That's a great question. And when I was growing up in the countryside in the so-called fruit belt south of Lake Ontario in New York State, we lived three miles outside of a village of 700. And our child rearing practices in that region were basically set the kids free and we had forests and fields and orchards and ponds and the lake itself, Lake Ontario itself, really as our, as our parent and attuning to the rhythm of the seasons, attuning to really the intimacy with food that one can develop in such an agricultural region predisposed me to seek out sort of what we now would call an earth intimacy as a way of life. And when I started university, I um, took up the regular practice of yoga and lo and behold, discovered that this rhythm that had become so important to me as a, as a young person, was also a big part of the teachings that we received from a remarkable woman who had grown up in Calcutta and had really thought about different ways in which to communicate the teachings of the Upanishads, the teachings of the Bhagavad Gita, the teachings of the Yoga Sutra in an American context. And as she found herself literally like the rest of us, swept up into that rhythm of summer, autumn, winter, and spring. And as she came, as did we, to love the different forms of the elements we were studying on Long Island at that point, it just all came together. and. She was herself an activist. She was reared, as I mentioned, in the Calcutta during the time of the struggle for independence. She was an avid follower of Martin Luther King Jr. And she was also very informed about the environmental issues of the day. 
and she would compose songs to the elements and she would compose songs as well that would highlight some of the issues such as global warming. So our yoga was a fully engaged yoga grounded in the ethics of nonviolence, ahimsa, as well as satya, satyagraha, holding to truth, the same ethics that really empowered the people of India to rise up against colonial oppression. And this um, all came together just so delightfully. I really appreciate the uh, you know role of activism and social engagement and you know, so there's this tendency, right, in uh, in the United States for yoga to have become very commercialized. And uh, just like, you know, so many other kind of um, Asian religious traditions, you know, turn into like Mick mindfulness and that kind of thing. And uh, and you're showing a pretty clear way where the, um, the individual is always embedded in the social and the ecological and uh, has that, you know, earth intimacy, as you say. Uh, so it's amazing also to hear how just natural that came together. That was just kind of you know, uh, in the water for you. Um, and then, you know, you have this new book out that also is focusing on the elements. Uh, so I'm wondering if you could say something about, you know, what's this book about, uh, living landscapes, and what are you thinking of the elements across these different traditions? Right, right. Well, it's interesting because, as you mentioned, with the commercialization of both meditation and the trivialization of yoga as purely exercise, there was this um, shock to my system as the, the yoga world changed from, um, I sort of hit the scene in the early 70s, and of course had been here since the 1890s. But when uh, I reflected as I visited the commercial centers that began to proliferate in Los Angeles in the 1990s, it was very interesting because I saw that so much that was critical and fundamental to the training that we had received was absent. So I began training yoga teachers and informing them about the centrality of ethical practice, informing them about content-filled meditation practice. And there's a group um, that had been in its infancy called the Green Yoga Association. This is uh, in the early aughts, as we call them now, focalized by Dr. Laura Cornell. And we began to launch these remarkable events and trainings and certifications that integrate yoga and ecology across all of the different yoga platforms. So during those years, we certified hundreds and hundreds of yoga studios as green yoga studios. And we trained hundreds and hundreds of yoga teachers from all over the world. And in reflecting about my own training from the 1970s that brought together the ethical and the contemplative, and in conversation with those who really saw yoga as purely a vanity undertaking, 
as well as hearing the theological critique that, well, India and Vedanta and yoga, they don't value the world at all. All of that just sort of congealed. And I did my doctoral studies with Thomas Berry. And Thomas Berry uh, was renowned, of course, for the Earth story and the universe story and the new story. And I remember my last conversation before he passed, we were on the telephone together. And he said, so what are you going to have as your next project? As only Thomas could invite in. And I said, well, I want to restore the good name of the practices of yoga that enhance human earth relations. And he said, very good. <laughs> and I had been engaged in a 20-year project, uh, actually more than 20 years, of translating from the Vedas, translating from medieval literature, translating from early modern literature, those specific instructions that talk about what we trained in at the ashram, that talk about reflection on the earth, thinking about water, making water the central focus of one's meditation. Air, fire, space, all of them. And in the book, what I do is layer in my personal narrative of undertaking these practices and linking them back to my childhood experiences. And the experience was as follows. Every morning for 20 minutes and every evening for 20 minutes for a full month, we were to sit with a plate of soil and thread every thought through that soil. And it was, it is a remarkable practice. And what comes up through the day is that you're walking along and you look at dirt and you say, oh yeah, I know that dirt. And I was a student at Stony Brook University on Long Island and I had this walk to get to campus and I had to walk along a truck farm and I saw the onions getting ready for harvest. And then I had to walk through a forest, across a meadow, and the earth connections were so obvious and so restorative, so calming. And then we switched and for the next month, we were to get a clear vessel of, of water and to sit with that water and to link every thought with water, whether it be, oh yeah, I'm thirsty, or oh yeah, I gotta go to the bathroom, or oh yeah, I just got out of the shower, or oh yeah, this afternoon, I'm gonna go down to Long Island Sound. And living on Long Island, you're surrounded with water. And we discovered the rivers of Long Island, the Great South Bay, Fire Island beaches, North Shore beaches, and again, those 20 minutes in the morning and 20 minutes at night, they were a really a launch pad 
for immersion. And I have one very fond memory of swimming in October in Long Island Sound. It's, yeah, uh, deep love for water. And then similarly, to light a flame and sit with that flame 20 minutes in the morning and 20 minutes at night and take it far and wide. So when we work with computers, we're invoking the flame. When we heat our houses, we're invoking the flame. Every time we turn on a light, we're invoking the flame. And as our teacher would say, her name, Garani Anjali Inti, she would say, nothing exists in isolation. So that energy consumption, so that cooking choices, okay, all of this requires thoughtfulness in seeing connections. And I remember, I mean, to this day, we don't own one, but I remember, again, this is the 70s. So the microwave oven was the new appliance. <laughs> and yeah, we had a little bit of suspicion of it. And then another full month on the breeze, the wind, the breath. And then perhaps our favorite was space. Mm -hmm. To just... Simply sit, gaze out the window, and the space becomes the immediate, literal space. The space becomes metaphorical and psychological space. The space becomes an examination of the very quality of the way we present ourselves to the world. So that meditation on the five elements, we were doing uh, just because we were told to do it. <laughs> and then as the years went by, I discovered, oh, all of these passages from the Vedas, all of these chapters in the Yoga Vasishta, all of these specifications of how to do these meditations found in Buddhist scripture, as well as the Garanda Samhita, again, a late medieval, early modern Hatha Yoga text. And seeing these connections does two things. Okay? In order to be effective to make systemic change, we have to come from a place of authenticity, from a place of authority, from a place of groundedness from a place of fluidity and energy, whether hot energy or movement energy, as well as space, in order to then do what is needful out in the world. So by having that home, that place of comfort in terms of relationship with the elements, with the planet, and with the universe, we're able to discern what should be done. We're able to, to discern what can be done. And we're able to find the will and resolve 
to do what must be done. So that's why the book came about. And then uh, another part of the book that was really quite delightful uh, involved travel to India. And my uh, friend and colleague, Frank Clooney, who's at Harvard, had told me decades ago about these elemental temples in Tamil Nadu, where he had lived and studied and taught for many years. And an opportunity presented itself to visit those temples with someone who grew up in Tamil Nadu in South India. So we went from place to place, and I write about each of those temples. And then I also write about the experience of visiting different sacred places, both in the United States and in India, where the elements are just front and center. And that we can find in uh, various places throughout the book, as well as translations that were crafted specifically on meditation on the elements in Jain tradition and Advaita tradition in yoga tradition and Sankhya tradition and in Buddhist traditions. I'm you know, wondering, uh, one of the really amazing things about uh, you, know, you blending your scholarship and your practice is that you're also doing this with multiple traditions. And uh, of course, they're in conflict with each other on some points. Right. I mean, the classic example would be, you know, the Buddhists saying there is no self then Vedanta saying, oh, there's definitely a self. And so, you know, sometimes that just means, okay, I guess I'll pick my camp and you kind of go with one tradition or the other. But with you working with multiple traditions, you know, for many years, how do you how do you hold that tension? It's such a beautiful question. And it's both a personal question and an academic question. When I was an undergraduate and in the ashram simultaneously, I was studying Tibetan, reading Nagarjuna, really being convinced by Nagarjuna in the Tibetan and the Sanskrit that there really was no self. And I was studying with an Indian, a philosopher of India at the university, as well as my teacher within the ashram where of course that quiet place is the self. And I found a text that took the best of what I loved about Nagarjuna and Vasubandhu in terms of a, of a school of yoga that informed by Madhyamaka, the middle path of no self, but emphasizing the practice of yoga, yoga chara, says that everything depends upon one's state of mind. And it's a school called Chittamatra, mind only or consciousness only. And this became the focal point for my dissertation is that how can this text, it was called the yoga, or is called the Yoga Vasishta from over a thousand years ago which lifts up and just celebrates the universal collapsing into the individual and the individual exploding into the universal. It's a, it's a beautiful Advaita text in that regard. 
But the core practice is straight out of Buddhism, using all the Buddhist terminology of you've got to understand your mind in order to go through states of purification, in order to do what must be done in the world. So I just fell in love with this philosophy and began to not only look at that very voluntarist approach, almost Nietzschean willful approach to world engagement, and then later saw that this same very text has these elemental meditations, the same meditations that we see were taught by the Buddha to his very son, and the same meditations that are integral to modern, well, by modern, I mean the 300-year-old articulated tradition of Hatha Yoga. So what I received from my teacher is part of a line that extends back to the Vedas through the medieval and early modern literature that actually in Quaker language speaks to our condition. That in order to do what we need to do, we have to know who we are. And how do we know who we are? We re-examine ourselves through the prism of the elemental presence within the human body. What is the earth relationship with body? It's the food. What is the water relationship with body? It's the water. What is the fire relationship with the body? It's our desire and our will. What is the wind relationship with the body? It's the breath. What is the space relationship with the body? It's the choices that we make every single day in terms of how we think and what we do. And when we can have an integrated relationship, then we're able to think clearly and do what we need to do. That's a, a pretty good answer. I really like that. Um, and that the, you know, cause it's such a just classic problem of, you know, how do you navigate tensions between different traditions and that the, uh, the kind of common ground between them is the literal common ground between them, that the elements are what we all are, what we all share. Uh, so I like that kind of way of doing it's kind of like the old idea of world religions right and some people say well i don't know about that construct and it's like well what if it was about the earth the and you know the cosmos that's actually tying us together it's a different uh, different approach altogether um well geez i want to let you go but i also want to hear one more thing from you because i always learn so much from talking to you so since i have you here i you know want to snatch you up and want to know is there one piece of advice you'd have for people who want to start getting into this kind of yoga. Maybe they already do yoga as an exercise, or maybe they know a little about it as a philosophy, but they haven't really thought of this more elemental approach to it. Uh, where would be something to start with, whether it's a text or maybe a practice? Yeah, I think the place to start is an art project. And this attention given to the elements universally found throughout India, finds expression in a little home shrine, as well as in every major shrine. There will be a thoughtful usage of earth, 
whether it be a carved piece of earth or just even a simple rock. And it reminds me of when I was a child, we would wander the fields and forests, and then we would bring back a special rock that would be added to our little collections. And to just appreciate that rock, Teilhard de Chardin, his religious quest started with a rock that he discovered in the corner of the field in his native France. Okay, so start with a rock and then find a really nice vessel and put some water in it and either just have the water there or maybe even get in the habit of bringing flowers in and maintaining the flowers. And then once in a while, light a flame and just sit with that flame. And if you're thus inclined and don't have allergies, uh, to get some incense and light incense once in a while and just watch it as it travels through the room. And then find a space in your life where you can just sit, even if it's only for five minutes. But give yourself time in. And just gaze upon the rock. Reflect appreciatively upon the gift of water. Be with that flame and appreciate the presence of warmth and light. Use it sparingly. Appreciate breath. With COVID, so many people have lost their breath with the passing of George Floyd. We have greater intimacy as a society with the, you know, the just breath, breathing. And again, space, personal space, social space, all so important. And to just set a little period of time aside every day to check in. I think that's a way to start. Nice. I like that a lot. Yeah, good, good advice and, uh, and simple, right? Finding a rock starts, uh, starts so simply. And yet, uh, as you, you kind of reflected to us, right, that if you do this, the more you do it for years and years, you develop a very profound sense of intimacy with uh, the earth and that that enlivens us and, uh, and regenerates us. Um, well, geez, thank you so much for being on Chris Chapel. I really appreciate it. Always learn a lot from you. Always inspired. Uh, so thanks for being here. Thank you. And thanks to everybody for tuning in. We'll be back next week with uh, some more discussions for you. And in the meantime, take care and be well.